Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Way to College podcast. I'm Dr. Jose Saldivar. And um, today, today is the second part of my conversation with Dr. Sochi Chavez. And um, if um, if I, my memory serves me correct, we were just getting to the University of Texas. And um, and so, Sochi, tell us about that experience. What was that like coming from um, Colorado and then to the wonderful state of Texas? <laughs> Buenos dias, buenas tardes, depending on where and when you're listening to this podcast. Um, thank you once again for having me back, um, Dr. Jose um, Saldivar. It's um, so Texas, Austin, Texas. You know, many times people are afraid to leave their home state. They're maybe even afraid to leave the region of their state. And I know mm -hmm. Texas is a huge state. And when I lived in Texas and being in Austin, I know that I remember some of the undergraduate students telling me um, that that was the first time that they ever had left South Texas, or that was the first time they had ever left, you know, East Texas and coming to the capital city. So, you know, imagine leaving the state for the first time, right? And so, yeah, I was a little nervous. You know, um, I think I had just mentioned that like even on my first day of classes, talking with my uh, advisors that they were saying, you're in the wrong field, you're in the wrong degree program. And I was about to have a panic, you know, like, yeah. you know, literally like, oh my gosh, eh, I had it in my, and I think they saw it because I said, wait a minute, I'm the first one to leave home. My dad and brother just returned back to Colorado. So how am I gonna get back home? <laughs> <laughs> told them that I go I'm the first one to leave the state yeah to get an advanced degree um I was like what do you mean I'm in the wrong program and so that was at that point where folks were saying like you know uh Charlie Hale Dr. Charlie Hale said it's okay you're an I'm an anthropologist too and then having conversation and working with Dr. Jose Limon after him reading my some papers uh, that I had written for a class he was like you have a really good eye. You have a really good storytelling eye. You tell yeah. great description, what they call thick description in anthropology, and 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 this kind of keen sense of talking about tradition and practices that are within our culture. And he's like, he goes, we have a program here, you know, um, that was started by Americo Paderes, you know, in terms of thinking about popular culture, expressive culture. Like, why is it important to look at all of these different traditions? And so. Um, I stuck around. And <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Yeah. Otherwise, that would have been an expensive Uber ride back to yeah, Colorado. Uber, Uber didn't exist yet. <laughs> you know, that I would have had to do Greyhound. ¿Te imaginas? <laughs> Austin, Texas, back to Pueblo, Colorado, if I remember correctly, driving in my own vehicle. If driving the speed limit could be <laughs> about a 20-hour um, drive. But oh, wow. But when you are in the summer season and it's at the tornado season, you can make it in 16. <laughs> <laughs> I, and not that you're advocating for no, that. No, I mean, no, no, no. Drive speed limit safely. So, so real quick, you, you, um, you know, you're at UT, you get the news that maybe you're in the wrong program, but right, there's, they, they see, they recognize, right, the anthropologist in you. Um, you know, you're you're obviously initially maybe scared, maybe a little worried, right? For for students, because you you hit on a lot of different things, right? One, you're away from home. You leave, you go to a different state, 
um, two, I, I imagine you were the only, you didn't know very many people, right? When you got there, how do you, how does one, how does one adjust? Cause I, I think a lot of students, right. A lot of young people, the thought of leaving to go somewhere, especially to go alone, I think is overwhelming and scary. What, what do you tell them? How did you do it? So I would have to say, I didn't know a soul. I didn't know a soul there. All I knew is through, um, because when you're in graduate school and think about this, and I'm trying to think about um, from undergrad, from high school to undergrad, and then from undergrad to high school, for those that might be listening is, um, this is what's so important about reaching out to people, right? As I said, to not suffer in silence, right? This is why it's so important to speak up and say, hey, I got you know accepted to the school. Do you know anybody? Maybe we might be able to link up in terms of sharing the cost for housing, right? Or will you be my roommate in the dorms or possibly be my roommate for an apartment? And so that's what I did is I basically contacted the graduate advisor there at UT Austin to say, hey, can you send me a list of other people that have been accepted to the program? Because I'm coming out of state, I need help finding an apartment, um, or do you have any listing of apartments for me? And so they sent me other people's names that were coming from different parts of the country, um, as well as the world, because I was in Latin American Studies, um, LILAS, which is a very well-known, internationally known, the Institute for Latin American Studies at this, this, the, Teresa Lozano Long. Um, so I got in contact with another Mexicana, Chicana, um, that was already in the state of Texas, but coming in from another city. And we um, became roommates that way. Um, but I think in terms of friendship, friendships, going to those orientations, going to those welcomes um, created by different student groups and asking you know just being present right i know so many times that this was before pre-cell phones um smartphones um we looked up we kept our faces up to look at who was around us what was going on what kind of activities and it was actually i have to give a shout out to two particular people it was jaman lee who's originally from oakland california and pablo gonzalez also from the bay area from richmond they probably saw that I had a different look to me. Like I'm not <laughs> Texan. I'm not Tejana, right? I yeah. stuck out like a sore thumb, right? Um, <laughs> um, but I think just in terms, they were part of the welcome. They were part of the welcome tour to help incoming students. And I just kind of walked up towards the front just to kind of really pay attention. Um, and. I think they saw that and part of that from every day that day since because both of them were in anthropology mm. and so they helped me and introduced me to other people and then the second way was um even though i was a mcnair scholar and i had a fellowship to help me right with my education i still needed a little bit of an extra uh, job because i needed to pay for some cost of living out of my own pocket because my tuition was paid for. So what did I do? You and and I mean this in all of the most respectful ways, right? I know how to hustle. I know that I without fear, without shame, I needed to find a job. 
Yeah. And I wanted to find a job on campus. And so I went into the Multicultural Information Center, which is called the MIC. And I basically, I knew because what I had learned from some of these earlier programs that we talked about, like the National Hispanic Institute um, and other, and having to like start working since the age of 15, right? Mm -hmm. at, um, I knew the importance of having a resume because if I needed to find an extra job, but I walked over there to the MIC um, and I just said, hey, um, I see this is the big center that services and helps all of the different student groups. You know, I was really active in student groups um, back in high school and in college. Um, if you have any openings, I'm a graduate student. She saw my resume and her name is Dr. Mumta um, now, who is a dean at a university. Um, she skips my, um, I, her last name is skipping my memory, but she was the one who took a chance on me um, and said, you know what, let me get back to you. Let me talk to you because I'm looking at your resume. I see you have a lot of experience working with other students. And yeah. It was through that also that that center that I end up finding friends by working with folks who were trying to help other students as well as they were coming in. So to kind of summarize, like, how did I make friends? Go to those orientations, go to those welcomes, go to those student clubs, seek them out, because you never know, just like when I was in undergrad, um, Mecha and ALAS, which was Association for Latin American Students, became my lifeline. And this weekend, as I celebrated my birthday, the majority of folks that were on that call were my friends from undergrad. And oh, wow. we have maintained friendships for more than over 20 years now. So, you know, it's really important in terms of thinking about those, when you work together with someone, when you are studying together with friends, those build lifelong friendships. Um, that's awesome. <clears throat> that's, that's awesome. Um, so thank you. Um, so you're Texas, you're finding your community, right? Building a community around you. Um, tell us about, you know, just general experience there, right? The, your, your professors, your classes, you're working on a master's, correct? Mm -hmm. right? Yes. So you know, what was, what was that transition like? So you talked about sort of building the community, finding, finding that support network, but academically, what was that like for you? Oh, wow. Um, grad school, it was my first time. Um, I call it UT was my boot camp. It was my wake up call of, in terms of recognizing the difference of what is needed, the academic rigor and discipline uh -huh. that's needed for a graduate program. Um, I again have to give a shout out to Pablo um, and also Pablo, Dr. Pablo Gonzalez, who's now at UC Berkeley, and then also Dr. Gilberto Rosas, and there were many other folks that were, but these were the anthropologists that took me under their wing and who helped me, they taught me how to study tips, right? When you're reading your book after each section, so even within a chapter when you're reading, once you get to a section heading, stop and write a summary of what you just, like a real quick couple of sentences of what were the importance of that section, right? Because sometimes we get lost on trying to write way too many notes of our readings. But, you know, like in terms of breaking it down within a chapter, look at per section. That was one of the techniques. Another thing was that um, a colleague showed me about was like 
really know well, like it's difficult. You might have to read a book per week, but make sure you really know one of the chapters at least really well and always have at least three questions, right? So whether they're questions for you, because sometimes we might be afraid to speak up in class, but at least write those questions down. Well, you know, so that way you have known that you had a conversation with the text, that there was something that was troubling you. Also have a dictionary, right? So that was something I had to learn new reading, studying techniques um, in order to make it, right? And also I think as we get other um, mujeres, women helped me where I, um, when I got to Santa Cruz, but in Texas it was like folks, we would create like rehearsals. So we would before class, we would hit each other up like, hey, does my question sound okay? Can I like run it by you? Yeah. Because you know that you need to perform, you know you need to speak up. And so just so, because sometimes we might be afraid. Sometimes we suffer from imposter syndrome of like, am I really supposed to be here? Like, wow, like I'm, I really see the difference between a first year master's student and a person who's already in their like first or second year PhD program, right? Yeah. Um, so it's, which are kind of dependent on your track that you come in, you might, it might be similar, but there's still also some folks that might have done a master's somewhere else. So when I started my master's, I think I was 22 or 23, because mm -hmm. I actually took five years to finish my undergrad, partly because I was working and also I studied abroad um, in the Dominican Republic for a year. So I was a little older, um, in terms of starting my master's program. But yeah, the academic rigor, um, at that point in time, um, I used to, I, I never drank coffee and I started hanging out at, um, coffee shops. And also because I had a Marxist class, this is where Gilberto Rosas comes in. I had to get tutors, Gilberto Rosas, you know, and I love Marxism, you know, like, <laughs> but I had to get another graduate tutor to help me again. We have to do things without shame. We have to go ask, go to the writing center. I would ask friends to help review my documents before I turned them into the professor. But yeah, for that Marxist class, even Dr. Richard Flores brought in a coffee pot. We all donated, brought in cups and coffee and creamer, but that's where I learned to drink coffee was at Texas and hanging out at coffee shops until 11 or one o'clock at night, depending on where I needed to study. But yeah, it was about discipline um, with with the academic rigor. But, you know, of course I had fun too. You know, I would go to the like the Guadalupe River and then like, and I'd go bike riding, go look at the fireflies and the bats and eating lots of barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you better eat your barbecue in Texas. <laughs> um, now, I love, um, you know, you talk about imposter syndrome and, um, I, I, you know, I don't, I think we all like, you know, I, I felt the same way. In fact, like, you know, I don't know that I've ever shared this with anybody. I, you know, I still, I'm still waiting for them to come and take my degrees away. <laughs> like, like, hey, where, how did you get that? Um, not be, you know, because yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a real thing and, and, you know, for, for, for young people, for people of color, um, what advice would you give them if they're struggling with that? You know, I see it a lot now. Um, and the advice that I give folks is 
you're here because you have proven it in various ways along your path from in high school on those standardized tests, which we know those standardized tests are biased and have different um, methods of measuring people, right? Dependent on where we come from. Yeah. But you beat those odds. You earned your space to be here. And one of the things is it's just about now, yes, we're going to feel the moment of like inadequacy, like I don't feel good enough, but you're here, you're part of an honors program because I work with honors students. So I actually work with a lot of students of color, first gen immigrant students or transfer students. And I have to remind them and say, you got into this program mm -hmm. because you showed it through your GPA. Because <clears throat> a professor saw something in you. Yeah. So it's always having to remind them and um, we have to take those moments because sometimes, yes, we might have self doubts, but I say, remind yourself of how hard you worked, remind yourself of what you have earned to be here. And you do this for yourself. You do this for whoever you want to share this accomplishment with. You don't have to prove it to anybody, but who you want to share it with. So it's kind of like, actually, I'm wearing a shirt today from the first gen of UCR and it says, believe there are always firsts for everything. Yeah. And I think it's really important to think about, you might be the first in your family and you might not have had that opportunity to hear these conversations at home, having parents or siblings or cousins, but know that there are campus organizations, offices, or resources, and other students that are going through the same thing so you're not alone. And so to seek out, and I think that's what was really important for me with these student clubs I was part of is a lot of us were first gen, yeah, first generation. A lot of us were suffering from imposter syndrome. And I think even as faculty right now, right? I, as you said to share, I sometimes still think about how the heck did I get here? Yeah. You know, like, how did I become a professor? You know, like, um, you know, jokingly, some of my brother's friends who I got, you know, I got along really well with his friends who are six years older. And they're like, how did they allow you to be in front of 300 students? They're giving me permission. Because, <laughs> you know, I wasn't like, a loca or crazy, but you know, I used to be a tomboy and do crazy stuff where like, yeah. you know, when you're from rural, from a rural area, you're doing crazy stuff on bikes and, you know, like in the prairies just to have fun. And they're like, now you're in front of students. <laughs> I was like, yeah, lo and behold, I guess I have brains. And, <laughs> um, but I think part of that is it's okay to fill those moments. It's okay to feel those moments of, okay, I'm having a moment of insecurity. <sighs> Breathe. Yeah. Take a, a step, but acknowledge all the hard work that you did and yeah. know that you can do it. And it might feel hard and you might feel sore. It's like working out where you're just like, this feels so heavy, but you can do it. And it's a matter of discipline and creating routine of saying, I can go back at it. I can chip away at it. I don't, I'm not going to get this all done in one, you know, like golpe, all in one whack. I'm going to get this done chipping away at it. And I think we have to remind ourselves of that. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, and I totally agree. So 
you know, you're, you're at UT, you found your place, you're, you've adjusted I, to the academic rigors, right? Calling it the, your boot camp. Um, <clears throat> so while you're there, while you're studying, did you know, did you know, you know what, I want to continue and I want to pursue, I want to get that PhD? You know, um, I think because of, as I mentioned earlier, mentorship by other um, Chicana faculty who had started to introduce me to folks. And I started participating, which is also very important for undergraduate and graduates. Make sure that speak out, speak to uh, professors, ask them like, hey, you know, if, if they if they mark really wonderful grade on your paper and say, hey, you know, are there any conferences or can I present this somewhere? Yeah. And I really love when students have asked me, especially undergrads are like, well, I, I'm really proud of this paper. Is there anything that I can do more with it? And I'll say, hey, well, we can do an independent study. And then from there, you, um, you know, that's where I think for me was when I was invited to be part of panels, right? Um, I was, faculty members were asking me to be, to speak at conferences at like the National Association for Chicano and Chicana Studies. Um, I think it was, this is where Jose Limon and Richard Flores said, they put a panel of myself and Dr. Alex Chavez, who is now at Notre Dame, on the same panel. And they called us basically this legacy of Americo Paredes, who is the godfather like of Chicano studies and folklore. And they would call me actually little Olga, Dr. Olga Nanjera Ramirez, because she received <laughs> her PhD at um, UT Austin. And then it was kind of like, um, you know, my colleague was the counterpart of, you know, the folklore, you know, in mm. terms of this, this genealogy. So I think in terms of when professors are inviting you and they start calling you like somebody's like kind of like um, you're the mini person version of this. Of yeah. This, it really kind of says like, hey, I think, you know, I can. Right. I think I can. Like, that's really cool and getting acknowledged. I think I also want to make sure to t acknowledge, um, in addition to working at the Multicultural Information Center, I also worked for the Performing Arts, the UT, the PAC, uh, UT Austin Performing Arts Center, where that space, I was the graduate student assistant to um, the Liaison for Community Relation with Judith. And that was where I think the performing arts really hit for me, where I knew by helping to do the programming on yeah. what it meant when you bring practitioners. And at that time, we were doing work with Cuba and there was this big um, Americas program. We had to program for five years on, on what are traditional practices and how to bring in Latin America to the performing arts and how to bring community members from different parts of Austin to the theater. So it started to really, my brain started to like, you know, bubble and get going of like, this is really important to think about culture, community. We were creating educational curriculum. Like how can you bring all of that together? I loved that job. Yeah. If I were to ever leave academia, um, <laughs> um, it would be back to go doing some pr programming like that with um, performing arts centers or cultural arts centers. And hence, we'll get to there about how I got to the Smithsonian. Yeah. Um, but I think because of all of that, professors yeah. talking to me, having these other job opportunities on campus with something that I loved, because remember I said I always loved music and dance, really started to help me focus in 
on I'm going to go to grad school. And at that point, I applied to, I think, about seven graduate schools and I um, for my PhD, and I got accepted to all of them except preliminary to UNM, which UNM had, we've talked about this since the beginning, had been putting me always on this kind of like um, alternative list. But, you know, I went to other institutions that offered me amazing packages and got yeah. to work with folks. There's some great colleagues at UNM, but, you know, where I got the love was shown to me was at other institutions. And it was, yeah. you know, it was a hard choice because yeah. I could have stayed at UT Austin. Um, I was offered admission and a package, and but I received also admission to UC Santa Cruz um, to work with, at that time, the largest critical mass of Chicana Latina professors. And I also received fellowships um, to go there. So that was kind of like part of what helped me to jump. I, I love everything that you've shared because I think a lot of times, um, I, at least I see it, I see it more and more now where a lot of students say sort of this expectation that I'm going to go to school, I'm going to do my classes, I'm going to graduate and the jobs are going to be waiting for me. And, and I think what <clears throat> we often neglect to tell young people is that the the connections the network that they build is important the um the that they take advantage of opportunities that are available to them throughout their journey um because a lot of them don't don't see anything beyond their classes until you know i'm done and then i look and so i appreciate you sharing all of those things right just talking to your professors um presenting at conferences right um sharing your work connecting with with the older students or students you know that that can serve as mentors um i you know i think all of that is incredibly valuable and i, I don't think we share that enough we don't tell you know young people enough of that so i appreciate that so you were saying though that you know, you're, you're having all of these wonderful experiences that are informing the things that you want to do. And you can see yourself now. I can see, you know, down the road what you want to be doing. But you threw in a, a, a pretty important experience, the Smithsonian, right? And so in case people don't know what the Smithsonian is, there are people that don't. Tell us what the Smithsonian is and tell us about the work you did there. Okay, so the Smithsonian Institution is a national museum in Washington, D.C. Many times people are familiar or make the popular cultural reference when they think about Night at the Museum with Ben Stiller, right? Um, and where there's, it's, he's the night guard and like the, the mammoth comes to life, right? So I didn't work in the building where that the mammoth was, but I worked... <laughs> um, by 2010, right? So it'll take a slight jump. By 2010, because of these connections, because yeah. of presenting at conferences at the National Association for Chicano Chicana Studies, at the American Folklore um, Society, people started to hear this young Sochi talking about her research in Chiapas, hearing her research in Oaxaca. And that then, I get invited in 2010 to go be a cultural interpreter um, and linguistic interpreter for the Smithsonian Folklife Festival, um, which is created out of the Center for Cultural Heritage and Folklore. And I, that invitation came because of my advisor at that time from UC Santa Cruz, um, Olga Nanquera Ramirez, right, who was telling me, like, go to these conferences, Dr. Olivia Cadaval, who is a curator. Uh, she recently retired, but still extremely active, an amazing woman um, from Mexico. Um, 
whose, whose research was also looking at the ways that different Mexican and Latino communities reproduce festivals in the US, but in Washington, DC. So she sees me as a young person and invites me to go work for the Mexico Profundo, Profound Mexico, the, the deep inside of Mexico. And this is the first time I am working now for two weeks during the summer with like 250, 300 people that they bring from Mexico on the National Mall. Because when we think of a museum, we think of everything behind glass. We think of just objects that we're looking at. With the Folklife Festival, people, community members, there's years of design to come in to recreate the National Mall, that long grass area that we see in all those photographs of Washington, D.C., creating a mini city of different parts of Mexico. And wow. there I become a representative to help give the linguistic and cultural interpretation. Community members are still speaking for themselves, but I offer translations and I help to for both Spanish to English and English to Spanish, right? And also give additional cultural context to what is being recreated. So um, yeah, the Smithsonian by 2010 is becomes very important in my life and, um, and then becomes um, part of the postdoc and part of my resume in terms of as a, a, a professional, which we can get to soon. <laughs> Well, okay, so you know, you do work. You work for the Smithsonian, this wonderful experience, right? Um, and so now, all of a sudden, Sochi is on on a much grander stage, right? Than just even UT. Although, if you ask anybody in Texas, there's no grander stage than UT. But here you are. You're in the. You're on the Smithsonian. You're and you're doing this incredible work. Um, and so, tell us about. You know, take us take us forward a few years, and you know what what was next? What was next for Sochi? So after UT Austin, I went to UC Santa Cruz, and uh, that's where I uh, started studying. Uh, I did my PhD in cultural anthropology under the supervision of Olga Nanquera Ramirez, Pat Savea, Don Brennis, and Jonathan Fox, and also with lots of consultation from Carolyn Martin Shaw. Which, um, again, like I said. That was a pivotal moment in terms of, and I also pivoted from my work in Chiapas. Olga helped me, this was another place, to get that the master's thesis that I created. Remember, my research in Chia, from Chiapas was part of my Ronald E. McNair post-baccalaureate program, became my honors thesis, where I graduated cum laude. Take that to UT Austin to become my master's. Olga then says, let's get this printed in a book called Dancing Across Borders, and it becomes a chapter. My first publication, is my first year of grad school, which is really unheard of. And yeah. it was a great invitation, <clears throat> right? And so, and that's that type of mentorship that really helps to bolster things. Um, I will say, you know, in terms of like from there, I'm doing coursework, I'm struggling because UC Santa Cruz also has their standards and who I'm working with. And so I learned a lot. I grew a lot. I started to do work on um, working with community members in Oaxaca and Oaxaqueño community members within Santa Cruz um, city and county, as well as the Los Angeles area. So this is where I start doing, I do my work uh, with um, community members about why is it so important for Oaxaqueño immigrants to reproduce the Guelaguetza festival. And this is where, again, my transnational work starts happening and it's really amazing during that time before we get to 2010, right? In terms of that's what really built my reputation to get start to get acknowledgement, right? Of like, oh, somebody's doing something. But 
I'll have to say there was struggle. There wasn't always easiness. And again, um, yes, I might have had a fellowship that covered me for two years, but then I was also TAing. I also held down another couple of jobs in San Jose, one of them being a waitress on the weekend, as well as doing marketing for different beverage companies. So part of, I guess, my gift of being able to be a good salesperson is because, and I would tell students this, because a lot of my friends would say, you're gonna be a professor still working at a restaurant or doing these like marketing things. And I go, you know why? I go, because it's another language. And I wanna be fluent in being able to have conversation with community members. My language that I do not only want to be stuck in is academic language, because connecting with people if I can sell you a plate of food, right, while we're in a recession, you know, 2008 through 2010, or if I could sell you a beverage that costs $70, right, um, is means that I'm connecting with you in some sort of way, right? Because those yeah. are considered luxury items at that time. And so, and that I share this also to continue to say is there's struggles, there's still economic struggles, but how do we balance all of that with our school, right? To survive, to make it yeah. through, right? And so I, I wanna make sure to hearken on that and also why it's important to, when we're thinking about whether in undergrad or in graduate school, applying for scholarships, applying for fellowships, seeking out those different sources of economic, um, you know, subsidy because I don't want you to all have to go through the same thing I did of having multiple jobs while in school and taking out loans. And I think yeah. that's also, that's something important is, um, if you can, by all means, do your best to apply for scholarships and fellowships and avoid the student loans as much as possible. <laughs> Make sure that you have really great packages as you go to grad school. Um, and I have to say that, you know, there were a lot of people who helped advocate for me to have different financial um, scholarships or awards. And so I want to thank them because towards the end, it was difficult. And I think um, having these opportunities were really important. The Smithsonian was very important because, um, as I said, getting introduced to that, I was still in graduate school by 2010. I had, you know, I'd been doing work in Oaxaca back and forth. And then I get this invitation to go work at the Smithsonian for the summer. And I end up getting invited every summer afterwards until wow. 2000, um, I think it was like 15. And, um, but even at 2015, the last one of 2015 of working with, um, so I'll say 2010 was um, Mexico Profundo. And then there was the Colombia Festival. And then there was Peru. And then I was, um, when I graduate um, from UC Santa Cruz, finally, um, you know, with the dissertation in hand, I, there's the, the Smithsonian has a fellowship. So while if you're an undergrad or a graduate student, the Smithsonian offers internships and summer fellowships or during academic year. So check out the Smithsonian Institution for their different fellowships because you could go spend some time when things are back to normal in Washington, D.C. So I applied for the UC President's, po uh, I mean, excuse me, the Smithsonian President's postdoc, the UC President postdoc comes later. Um, I didn't get it the first time, but I got it the second time. And so while I'm there, I'm doing the work on now talking about the brass bands from Oaxaca. And I really start to hone in on what does it mean for women's participation in this male, this male dominate, 
space. Um, so while I'm doing that work, we're also simultaneously working on the next Folk Life Festival. I um, get asked to be the program curator or coordinator for um, the Pete Seeger tribute concert. And that year also Pete Seeger passes away. For those of you who don't know who Pete Seeger is, is an amazing, iconic folk singer who would um, went and kind of when we talk about folklore, study the songs from different community members and also had a lot of songs that talked about the conditions of what were people were going on. And so uh, his music, his work, the way that he spoke and what he sang about were songs about the people. So a lot of people, you know, he was an activist. And so my job then becomes to coordinate this huge tribute concert, bringing in 20 different artists from across the US and different parts of the globe. Um, and it was a two day event um, to tribute, you know, the life and work of Pete Seeger, you know, community um, artist and activist. And um, likewise, I then get acknowledged to, I apply to become um, the Latino Museum Studies Program Coordinator, which brings in graduate students to spend um, five weeks in Washington, DC, working with different curators in the museum. So this is like, it's like the ball starts rolling, right? And um, I apply also for another uh, award there was the, the American Indian Museum. It was an 18 month uh, fellowship, but I was simultaneously applying. This is where the importance of applying for grants comes in. I also apply for the UC President's postdoc, and um, which is a very prestigious postdoc um, once you're done with graduate school, get your PhD, you apply for postdocs to help you continue to refine your work and get it into a book um, state. I am called back to California. So having lived only 11 months in Washington, DC, I get this beautiful call um, from Kim, Kim Atkinson's, who's um, it, with the UC <coughs> postdoc to ask me, if I had received any other fellowships and whatnot, and um, I and she asked me if I was interested, and I said yes. Um, <laughs> you know, like to come back because and the UC President's postdoc is really important because part of its initiative, right? Which also now the University of Colorado has it, Michigan and Maryland, and also historically black um, colleges and universities are now part of this program is to create a pipeline to bring in more. Um, uh, biopoc folk into the professoriate, right? So when you complete your postdoc within the UC president's postdoc, there is a um, kind of a hiring incentive where the UC president's office will pay for five years of that faculty. So I am now on my last year as a, fi a fifth year assistant professor um, under the UC president's postdoc. So next year when I go up for tenure, then my campus will start to pay my salary. But that is kind of like the trajectory, right? Of uh, in a, like really kind of getting it into summation of it. Um, so it was fast. There were a couple of postdocs, a couple of jobs, you know, still hustling. <laughs> so. Oh, sorry. I also worked at the Smithsonian while I was still a postdoc doing and Jay might know, um, which has been really helpful because talking about technology and culture was the Latino uh, mobile broadcasting 
So I take my skills as an anthropologist going to visit community members for Dia de los Muertos and Christmas to document within the community through a cell phone, because this is now looking about how people can self-document and share their traditions. Mm. Um, so from 2015 to 2017-ish, yeah, 17, I am now working with the Smithsonian Latino Center to help community members document their different practices for Day of the Dead and um, food um, holiday um, cuisines. You've come quite a long way from uh, Pueblo, Colorado. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and and um, wow, um, it's really impressive. Really impressive, and um, congratulations. And and yeah, I wish you the best as you continue. Because um, it sounds like you know you've you've created a lot of opportunities for yourself. You'll continue to do so. You'll continue to have a number of opportunities for you, um, but just really your story, your story's just so impressive, so amazing, and and thank you for sharing that. Um, is it safe to say, Sochi, that you have been successful and and, and have been able to achieve so much? Um, because it it sounds like you adapted well, right? You you figured out what you needed to do to be successful and. In, in academia, but at the same time, it sounds like you also remained incredibly grounded and even have not lost sight of, of who you are, of that young girl growing up, you know, in Pueblo, Colorado and recognizing where you're coming from and your parents and, and just just staying grounded and, and, and knowing exactly who you are. Is that, say, can we say that? And I, I definitely want to say that a lot of this, we don't do this alone. Remember that, we don't do this alone. And if there's any message, right, to continue to bring that thread through of like, to not suffer in silence, no sufren silencio. You may be the first in your family, but there are other people who are going through the same battles. So seek those folks out. Um, Seek those folks out who may have been the first in their family, and they might be older, elders, mentors, academics, um, or academic padrinas and madrina, uh, padrinos. Be humble. Listen. Be willing to take advice and correct yourself. Right? And I think that's what's really important. And yes, I definitely always, my family is important to me. You know that. Um, my parents, my my um, niece and nephew, my brother and sister-in-law, like the extended family on both sides of the border, um, US and Mexico, I'm, it's always important to be connected. And I think that's why we say, we don't do this alone. We do this with um, many families, family and friends watching us, and <clears throat> also where we receive advice. So I think if anything, <coughs> excuse me, as parting words, it's like, there have been different community members and I call family who has helped me each step of the way. And I have a wonderful, thankfully, um, there's always struggle. I'll acknowledge that there's always struggle, but we do it with the support of our families, right? With our chosen family and our biological family. So um, it's always important to stay grounded and to keep our, what is important to us. Beautifully said. Dr. Sochil Chavez, thank you. Thank you again for um, 
sharing your story on the Way to College podcast. I appreciate your time. And um, and like I said, I think on the first episode, I, you know, I've known you for quite some time and didn't and didn't know you also at the same time. I, this has been really, this has been a treat for me. Um, because I, I I know so much of your journey and I've known a lot of the things that, that you've done, but to really get this much detail and to, to get sort of that behind the scenes aspect, I appreciate it. And I'm, I'm sure our listeners do too. So thank you. Thank you so much for allowing me to share my story. And yes, this has been such a wonderful reunion with a dear friend, a person that I look up to as well in terms of all the work that you're doing and i want to share if there's ever anybody that at some point you ever want to come to the uc the university of california um, system or to riverside in particular look me up so thank you once again i'm dr Sochil chavez from uc riverside department of music thank you Sochil. and this concludes another episode of the way to college podcast and join us next time Thank you and bye-bye. Buenas tardes.